Welcome, friends, to another episode of What's Good with Ben V. On today's episode, we talk to Tim Fleiser, former CFL professional football player, and uh, he's the only CFL player to win four Grey Cups, which is their championship cup, went on to become an NFL and a CFL agent, and now he is the chief executive officer and director of the Concussion Legacy Foundation's Canadian chapter, and Tim and I today will talk about what's going on in the space of concussions, uh, what's going on on the player side, what's going on on the medical side, on the research side, and uh, what uh, you as a parent should be thinking about uh, if your kids are playing sports. So it's a really good conversation about a very important topic, and I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope you do as well. Welcome to What's Good with uh, Ben V. And our guest today is Tim Fleiser. Tim's a dear friend and Tim is uh, currently the head of the Concussion Legacy Foundation's Canadian chapter. And today uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. And uh, for our audience that doesn't know anything about the work they do and what's happening in TBI and sports. So welcome, Tim. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming to the show and uh, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, Ben. Always good to see you. Absolutely. Yeah. Good to see you too, buddy. So yeah. So um, the public is becoming more aware of CTE because of the media coverage of it. And obviously a lot of high profile cases in the last few years um, have shed a lot of light on it, but people don't really understand who's behind the scenes and what kind of work is happening academically, medically, you know, and you being the head of the CLF. Can you tell us about how that started and, you know, where it's evolved to today? Sure thing. So it was my college teammate um, at Harvard, Chris Nowinski, uh, that first founded Concussion Legacy Foundation on the U.S. side. At that time, we were known as the Sports Legacy Institute and have since rebranded. And Chris um, had uh, the unusual career path after graduating of wrestling in the WWE. And uh, as he uh, says, he got kicked in the head too many times and uh, started, started suffering from symptoms, couldn't figure out what was going on. And uh, ended up in Bob Cantu's office, uh, Dr. Robert Cantu. And uh, Dr. Cantu asked him, said, well, have you ever had any concussions? And he said, no, I never had any. And Dr. Cantu went through the list of symptoms with him. Well, are you getting headaches? Are you getting dizzy? Are you seeing stars? And Chris said, well, yeah, that happens all the time. And uh, Dr. Cantu said, well, those are all concussive episodes and you're suffering from post-concussion syndrome. And uh, Chris was blown away. And he said, you know, I've been around elite sports and elite athletes. And, you know, how do I not know any of this information? And, you know, we were always, you know, you saw stars or you saw double or, you know, any of those symptoms. It's you just played through it, right? And you just waited till it went away. And nobody thought it was any mm -hmm. big deal. And uh, so Chris uh, started doing, did a very, if you've read his book, Head Games, um, you know, quite impressive in terms of uh, the number of sources cited in there and put together a really strong argument that, in fact, there was this epidemic of concussions happening right under our noses in plain sight, and we just weren't paying attention. And um, as we started peeling back layers, it's the problem just got worse and worse and worse. And, you know, it sort of seems like through the last 10 years plus of all this, it's every time we've peeled back a layer of the onion, it's 
sort of feels like, oh, well, it can't be that bad. And uh, mm-hmm. inevitably, you know, it's actually worse than we think that it could be. And uh, I think that was certainly the case when we started looking at CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And, um, you know, it's a, it's certainly a nuanced conversation. I don't think the public necessarily understands it at this point. I agree with you. Yeah, it's interesting because um, the public, like as an athlete, we've always been trained like you kind of just walk it off. And to a certain extent in most sports, that's still you know, uh, that's still the, the ideal is, you know, you just, you walk it off and people don't understand that it's those little incidences that also total up that subconcussive trauma and also the variety of sports that they're looking at now that are not necessarily contact sports. Um, you know, uh, race car driving and equestrian where, you know, per athlete, the incidence of concussions is so high and, uh, and they weren't, they didn't make the connection. So what kind of work is CLF doing now? Like what's their primary function? Yeah. So, so first, first off, you know, we love sports, right? As an organization, it's, uh, we're definitely not saying that, that people should be playing less sports. Um, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I think the thought is to try and, you know, make these sports, um, as safe as possible and, um, to have them be what sports are supposed to be about, which is, you know, developing great athletes and developing even better people. And I've always felt, and, you know, just speaking from my own personal experience, I mean, sports was so foundational. I know it was for you too, Ben, was so foundational in, in my development. And, uh, you know, you and I both have boys of similar age. Uh, you know, my boys are five and three. And if I'm not mistaken, Milo's four, right? Correct. Yeah. And so, you know, I, and I know we talk about this quite a bit is, is, you know, we want them to have all the benefits of playing these sports, you know, and the, uh, you know, the, the common one these days to ask for former, former professional football players is, do you want your son to play football? And, uh, you right. know, the answer that's in vogue right now is to say, no, I've never let him play. Right. And, uh, right. and for me, it's the opposite. I, I want my boys to play football. I just, I want them to be uh, safe when they play and I don't want them to be exposed to this long-term risk. And, you know, there's a, there's a great part. I mean, sports teaches you to be tough, right? And, and sports teaches you that when you get knocked down, get back up. And my dad, who was a, who was a great football player, won the Heck Creighton Trophy, which for your American audience is the Canadian equivalent of the Heisman uh, Trophy. Right. And that was the greatest lesson he ever taught me because life is mm-hmm. tough and you're going to get knocked down over and over and over again. And in fact, you right. know, your resilience and your grit is going to be the biggest single factor in determining whether you're successful or not. That's a, that's a lesson that sports is uniquely positioned to teach you. Right. Right. But, but right. here's the issue is that in teaching that lesson, um, we're creating this long-term risk for our athletes. So that's really our connection. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's the issue when I'm talking about, you know, the athlete population and particularly with children, uh, that's what we're trying mm-hmm. to solve is how do you keep the mm-hmm. benefits of sport, you know, for kids like our kids who are rough and tumble kids, how do you, right. how do you give them a great outlet for that? Right. So they're not, you know, jumping off cliffs with their skis or jumping off roofs of houses with their skateboards. Right. We're actually right, giving right. them a safe environment where they can explore that rough and tumble creativity, right? And develop that part of it. Because I think that is, again, an important part of, you know, not only their their physical and uh, psychological development, uh, but also mm-hmm. in terms of as, as athletes, right? And just getting used to right. their body, that kind of thing. And so, you know, you asked about 
the work that we're doing. So um, when you think about uh, our foundation in the U.S., uh, which started back in 2007 with Chris and with uh, Dr. Cantu, and then our group, which is in Canada, which uh, start, started in 2012, and we got our charitable status in 2014 and started operating right around then. I mean, I really think of it in sort of three pillars. We think about the prevention piece, we think about mm-hmm. the research piece, and we think about the treatment piece. And so, mm-hmm. you know, speaking in Canada, uh, we've done uh, almost 250 in-person events, 26,000 people. Obviously, COVID's changed that. Uh, we've always right. been very strong on the earned media front, um, you know, have been featured in Canadian media, coast to coast, lots of national platforms, and um, have really in the last year or so, and, and you've been part of this, been developing our digital outreach at CLF. Right. And so, you know, we're, we're reaching... You know, hundreds of thousands of people with our prevention program and through our earned media, we've reached millions of, of Canadians coast to coast. In the U.S., uh, Chris and his group has been uh, incredibly successful as well on that prevention side, um, doing programs such as Team Up, Speak Up. Uh, which happens in September every year uh, and will be certainly pertinent this year when uh, we're sort of hoping that timing-wise, that says the world starts to open back up and sports start to be played again, you know, coast to coast and internationally. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you and I have talked privately about our concerns of kids in this prolonged period of, uh, of being off and what's going to happen from an injury risk standpoint when these kids get back on the field. Exactly. Yeah, I actually think our Team Up Speak Up campaign is going to be very timely and very well positioned where uh, we have a team leader, be it the coach or the team captain, stand in front of the team at the beginning of the season and say, you know, we're a team. We take care of each other. Concussions are serious. Head injuries are serious. If you see that any of your teammates has uh, any of the following symptoms of concussion, we expect you to get them off the field, off the court or off the ice and have them seen by either mm-hmm. a coach or the trainer. Because we know right. that's when the most serious acute concussions happen is when an athlete gets a concussion, the brain becomes vulnerable and they try and play through mm-hmm. it and get hit again. That's when, that's when the right. most serious situations arise. Concussion on its own is not that big a deal. Right. 80 to 90 percent of them resolve on their own within two weeks if they're properly managed. And uh, we're getting Mm -hmm. better and better at managing that all the time. And again, the biggest risk factor there is if an athlete tries to come back too soon before they're healed, because uh, once the Mm -hmm. brain is is once you've gotten a concussion, your brain's much more vulnerable to us to a second unless you take the time to Mm -hmm. heal properly. And I do think that messaging is getting out. Um, I do think the public understands that better than they did certainly 10 years ago. Uh, and so that's an example on the U.S. side um, on the prevention standpoint is team up, speak up um, and having having the, the team video that speech from the captain of the coach and posting it on social media. And last year across North America, we had uh, over six or two years ago, sorry, because it didn't happen last year because of the pandemic. We had over six million mm-hmm. athletes participate. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. I didn't know the numbers are that big. Yeah. yeah we, we've, you know, we've been relatively successful at, at reaching people on the prevention side. On the research side, mm-hmm. uh, been very well documented. The partnership with Boston University has worked very, very well. Um, we've now autopsied over a thousand brains there uh, with Anne McKee and, and uh, her crew at BU and uh, really mm-hmm. made people aware of this brain disease, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, um, that uh, quite frankly, in advance, 
that's sort of been on the, on the fringes of medicine, right? It's the history on that is, is they used to call it dementia pugilistica, um, it was really right. sort of associated with boxers. And then um, right. after a number of high profile suicides, uh, such as Mike Webster, and then uh, especially Dave Dewerson, uh, which led to a New York Times article uh, the public started becoming aware that there was this brain disease. Although, like we were talking about earlier, I'm not sure necessarily the public understands how it works. I think the perception right. is is that you get CTE if you've had a lot of concussions. And we know that the risk factor is an acute concussion. It's the number of subconcussive blows that you've received in the course of your career. So, right. you know, taking on a base block in football or heading a ball in soccer, or getting body checked in soccer. hockey. And, you know, the cumulative mm -hmm. hits that you receive on that over and over and over again um, mm -hmm. is, is basically your risk factor. So the way we talk about it, um, and one of the researchers, Dr. Lee Goldstein, said it very, very well, where... Uh, concussion mm -hmm. is the injury. Post-concussion syndrome are the symptoms of the injury. And chronic traumatic encephalopathy mm -hmm. is the brain disease that comes from too many subconcussive blows or gets caused by subconcussive blows. Right, right. Understood. It's interesting because I see in what I look at in the public narrative, that's sort of changing as well, where the public awareness, they're realizing that it's not insulated to just contact sports. So, you know, if you're a figure skater, like I said, if you're a race car driver, equestrian, then now they have to look at all sports. And the second part is that it's not a head injury. Like you said, you know, a concussion is not necessarily a head injury. You know, that can be one of the effects of it. Um, but that's becoming more aware where the public is like, oh, these, okay, we need to pay attention to this subconcussive trauma, this repetitive, you know, contact. And we need to look outside of just, you know, football, hockey, and, 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 and fighting sports. We need to look at all sports. And I think that awareness is starting to change a little bit. It, it, it is. And so I think there's, there's, two real elements that'll make the difference in this in this whole calculus, which is the first being uh, not subjecting kids uh, to subconcussive blows. We're saying the age of 14 uh, to be safe, but really until their bodies are mature enough to, to handle it, right? So what you see is that uh, our heads grow very quickly, right? To, to 80, 90% of the adult size. But when you look at little kids, they're little bobbleheads, right? They're, they're, their neck yeah. strength is only 20 or 30 percent of what it will be when they're adults. And so we need to wait for neck strength and for uh, the rest of athletes' bodies to develop where they're better able to uh, handle some of these impacts and, you know, having the brain go through the development phase that it needs to go through until uh, kids become teenagers. And so, you know, for those reasons, you know, we strongly suggest, I mean, not just for ethical reasons, but also when you think about mm -hmm. the best way to develop athletes um, is to mm -hmm. not subject them to subconcussive trauma um, until they're 14 years old. So no body checking in hockey, no headers in, uh, in soccer, no tackling in football or mm -hmm. rugby um, mm -hmm. and letting those letting those athletes develop. And so. That's interesting because that's the East German, Soviet model, Cuban model, you know, that 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 pyramid model where they have a lot of levels of foundational development, even when you start getting specific to one sport. So if you sport even as boxing, you're not sparring and you're not getting any kind of head contact until after a certain age. And then after that age, they 
carefully monitor the volume of actual sparring and or contact. So that model's already been in place. It's interesting. And, you know, now it's it's coming to light here, you know, relative to TBI. Right. And, you know, for those, for those people that don't connect with the, the ethical or the health argument, um, talking about in terms of athletic performance. I mean, the regimes you just mentioned are not necessarily known for uh, their warm and fuzzy sympathy, right? <laughs> right. The, reason the reason they're doing that is that, you know, subjecting athletes to these blows slows reaction time and makes them more vulnerable right. to injuries and shortens their careers, those sort of, those sort of things. It, it, long and the short, it impedes performance, right? So the other... Yeah. The other recommendation, um, you know, strong recommendation is trying to limit the amount of subconcussive blows that happen in practice. And we've seen it be very, very effective in football, right? And you've seen it going back to, um, you know, a couple of years ago, the collective bargaining agreement where the NFL uh, Players Association uh, took less of a total percentage in shared revenue, but got much better working conditions where, now, you know, it's very regulated how much contact you're going to have in training camp and essentially very little contact happens uh, throughout the course of the season, you know, right, which is a right. huge change right in the football culture. And we've gradually seen that filter down. Uh, there's been some uh, articles lately about uh, about trying to limit more and more at the NCAA level, uh, the Ivy League uh, which I'm obviously partial to uh, banned uh, contact practices uh, during the season a long time ago. Uh, certainly mm -hmm. that filters down all the way to uh, to youth football where, you know, the coaches, the, the innovative coaches are starting to figure out how to teach tackling and how to teach contact using as much as possible bags, sleds, um, those kind of drills. And, you know, look, while it's important that athletes, the first time they're doing live contact in a season, it shouldn't be in a game. You need to find a way to practice mm -hmm. that minimizing it uh, has really, again, worked very, very well in the football world and has dramatically uh, reduced the risk. And you're starting to see that now uh, with other sports. The U.S. bans uh, heading in soccer for kids under the age of 12 in 2015. Right. And uh, unfortunately, we've been uh, slower to adopt that here in Canada. And uh, recently, the uh, European Association recommended limiting headers Although we're hoping for stronger languages that for that as we go forward, uh, so those those are really the, the two big things on the uh, on the research side, and then and then our final pillar is treatment. Yeah, that's a big one that you and I know intimately, and but we're seeing some you know we're seeing some really big jumps. I'm seeing a lot more medical people thinking about a very integrative approach to treating acute trauma and treating long-term, looking at many different facets of treatment as being integrated, you know, you know, one plus one is three when it comes to treating TBI. Um, and I know that's what you're seeing on your end as well. And I know there's a lot of research going on into that. Yeah, growing in leaps and bounds, right? Even, even you know, five, seven years ago, it was still sit in a dark room and wait till you feel better, which, you know, you put a mm -hmm. healthy person in a dark room for two weeks, they're going to get weird and uh, not, ne not necessarily do well from a mental health standpoint. And uh, so what we've figured out is is actually it's a, uh, you know, a gradual return. And, and, you know, after the first 48 hours or so, um, starting to introduce, um, you know, some rehabilitation, whether that be, you know, ocular, vestibular, 
um, some of the other modalities that uh, that people are looking at. And you're absolutely right. The multi multidisciplinary approach is always the best. And one of the tricky things about brain injury, it's never one size fits all. It's never one rehabilitation prescription is going to work for everybody. It's people tend to respond to different facets of treatment. And so having that multidisciplinary approach um, is certainly what we recommend and, and very interesting to see uh, some of the progress that's being made in, in areas like looking at nutrition and the role of nutrition and rehabilitation. And uh, we're getting better and better and better at rehabbing these injuries now that people are paying attention to them, which is heartening. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I see it on my end as well. And you mentioned uh, that uh, from an awareness standpoint that there was so much going on in youth sports. What message would you send parents to look for, like you and I have young boys, what message would you send them you know, as a family unit? What, what things should they be aware of? Yeah, so the, the first one being not exposing your kid to sub-concussive blows. So, you know, flag football is a, a great option. Um, you know, you're playing, playing uh, hockey without any sort of body contact, you know, up until the teenage years. Uh, doing no heading in soccer, right? Those sort of things. And so, you know, a big part of that is sort of seeing how a league operates, how a coach operates, those sort of things. And it's interesting, right? Like even for me, you know, that that played 10 years of professional football and, you know, tends to tower over any coach that my, that my kids have, it's still a bit of an awkward conversation, right? It was it was for uh, my oldest um, at one point in one soccer practice. They started doing some headers, and you know, I was my instinct was to run out on the field, and um, right. and even having that conversation, like you know, I've always sort of imagined what it would be like for you know a single mother with no athletic background having to go and have this conversation with a coach. It's a little bit challenging because you sort of don't want to interfere with that relationship, but. Um, you know, you just, you need to be, um, totally intransient when it, when it comes to the, I mean, you just, you know, can't sacrifice, there is no middle ground in terms of the health of your kids. So I, I recommend doing that. The other one is just, you know, what we try and capture in the team up speak up speech, which is, you know, having, making sure that the teams that your kid plays on, uh, that there is this culture of reporting, right. And that understanding mm -hmm. that, you know, if it's a slight ankle sprain or a bruise or something like that, being tough and playing through it is great. And like I said earlier in the in our time together, it's uh, um, that's a great lesson for kids to learn. But in the same yeah. way that you know, if you think somebody potentially has a, a fractured uh, spine or a fractured neck, everybody freaks out. You know, stabilizes the mm -hmm. head, and nobody would ever think of asking an athlete to go back in if, if, um, if they thought they had a broken neck, maybe just as serious with concussions, mm -hmm. right? It's just one of those injuries that you just do not mess around with. And so, you know, if, if people think that somebody sustained a brain injury, it's, you got to get them out until they're evaluated. You'd be, you know, particularly with kids, it's, you got to be very, very cautious with that. Yeah. That's a good message because I've seen it trickle down from the pro level where it's more the teammates are starting to get more aware and involved. You know, whereas before you wouldn't see that. Now you've seen it even on a high school level. A guy has a small event and his teammates are very concerned about 
hey, how are you doing? And they're trying to notice anything different, you know, with, with their teammate, which you didn't see before. It was the onus was just on the coaches and, and the parents to a certain extent. But now the teammates who spend so much time, they're like, hey, you know, you OK? That, I think, is a big one. Yeah. Because, you know, that that takes the responsibility from the athlete or feeling guilty about not, you know, not being able to participate if they have that support from their teammates. Yeah, very, very heartening to see that culture change. And, you know, asking somebody who's neurologically impaired by definition to self-report is a terrible strategy. Right. And so having that, having that bystander model, right, where, you know, it's and you know, when when, you know, you're on the bench in baseball or you know, uh, with your teammates in soccer and the huddle and football, it's tough for the refs to monitor, you know, all the different people that are, that are on the playing surface. It's tough for the parents to sort of see everything from the stands, but generally the kids always know, right. They know that Billy or Susie is acting a little bit weird. And so it's just equipping, particularly the really little kids, it's equipping them with the language skills of being able to tell that to the coach or to the trainer and to getting them, you know, off the field, off the court, off the ice. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's important. That's important. No, I clear. I think I talked to you about. It. I clearly remember a couple of times, literally walking back to the wrong dugout, and no one saying anything. And in hindsight, you think, wow, that's a pretty solid indicator that there's something wrong that you shouldn't go back in the game, but. You know, that was the culture, but now that's completely changed, which is, you know, incredible. So the overall scope of those three pillars is obviously public awareness. And, you know, uh, where does CLF want to go in the future now? Yeah. So, so, you know, when thinking about the treatment side of things, uh, about a year and a half ago on the U.S. side, we launched the, what we call the helpline, uh, which is not a crisis mm-hmm. line. It's a patient navigation service. And uh, mm-hmm. we've had it up and running now in Canada for uh, for a year. And uh, really what we see is depending where somebody lives geographically, um, you'll see a really wide variety in terms of access to treatment services. So what this, mm-hmm. uh, what this is for is, is to basically try and pair patients with best available services in their area. And of course, during the pandemic mm-hmm. and the, the evolution of telemedicine, we're starting to see better and better digital solutions as well, uh, which I think is going to be an important piece in, in figuring this out. So, yeah, when you think about the three pillars of prevention, uh, research and treatment, um, you know, we feel like we're doing a decent job of, of making advances on all three. And I agree with you. The culture has changed. I did talk to a CFL uh, head coach the other day and he, he told me, he said, flies. it's not like our day. Uh, this guy's a former player. When, you know, we'd be in the special teams room and some guy would get lit up on a blindside shot and we'd all cheer. It's when you see that happen mm-hmm. now, it's everybody gasps, you know, it's um, mm-hmm. the way I talk mm-hmm. about it. It's like back in our day, speaking of football terms, it's like when somebody came and chop block you from the outside in at the knee. Right. And everybody knows that could potentially end your career through a serious knee injury. And if that happened, everybody right. would freak out. Right. And now uh, head injury is treated the same way where we understand that, you know, a huge blindside hit um, could not only end somebody's career, but change, ultimately change their life and impact them in a negative way. And so, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you've always seen, you know, starting at pro sports with a players association, 
you know, you want to battle somebody hard, but you never want to take away their uh, their ability to to make, earn a living through sport. And I think people are starting to realize right. that if you light somebody up, that can happen. Yeah. No. I mean, uh, it's funny because I, I I was listening to what's growing to be probably one of the most popular sports in the world, UFC. I was listening to one of the fighters on an interview and. There's a few high level fighters, champions that are saying, hey, um, we're not really sparring uh, like we did before. Uh, we're cutting down or in some cases cutting out completely live sparring and we're just drilling um, because we don't need to. And we're really there's enough examples of fighters out there who have in the long term taken a bad turn and we want to start looking at all of this contact that we are exposed to in practice and which i think for that you know for that type of sport to make that kind of awareness is huge because it's you know it's grow, growing by leaps and bounds so the conversation is you know taking the same turn in a lot of different sports yeah dr jeff brooks who who works with us who you know gotten to know very well over the years, Ben. Um, he recently com completed his PhD and he was looking at uh, the number of hits that the Western University varsity football team took over the course of five years. So he had accelerometers in the players' helmets and me measured every impact they received, whether it be practice or at games. And uh, mm -hmm. in tandem, he was measuring reaction time. And we'd always hypothesized that, you know, reaction time or, or you know, any of these uh, any of, of sort of your your biological process would potentially get slowed a little bit during season, uh, but then you'd mm -hmm. see in the off season you'd see you know a bounce back or a recovery. And what his data in terms of reaction time actually showed is is that players did not bounce back in the off season, and basically you know in proportion to the number of, of impacts that they took over time, their reaction time would just decrease. And you know Ben right. you know, is one of the top experts in the world. You know how important reaction time is. I mean if you know, it's maybe the single most important metric when you're talking about athleticism and talking about performance. And so to have that slowed, um, you know, certainly doesn't help an athlete. Right. And so it's unsurprising to me that people in the combat sports are starting to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. No, it puts them in danger. You know, when that slows down, it's traditionally been viewed as uh, that athlete lost a step or, you know, um, uh father time caught up with that athlete, you know, when in fact it could be that cumulative amount of damage that they took, you know, in training and in their career that's caught up that's with right. them um, and puts them in, in harm's way. But um, listen, this conversation, we have to have a part two of this, buddy, because like you said, it's growing exponentially. And I, you know, I, I wanted to give the audience a nice little foundation of what you guys are doing. And, you know, it's obviously incredible work and uh you know i'm proud to be part of it in a small way and uh and thanks man we we appreciate you being on the show and uh we hope to have you on again yeah it, it's been fantastic working with you over the years ben and uh you know i think your stuff has has made a real impact for the athletes so uh, great, great to have you be part of it. Great to be part of it as well. And, uh, you know, lot, lots of fun, the team that we've put together and around this, uh, we, we have some fantastic people working on this issue. And, uh, you know, as we start to look at other populations now, like the military and first responders and, and, you know, people who have been subjected to violence, that sort of thing, you know, still, still lots of work to be done. 
uh, lots we can learn from uh, from the experience of athletes. But uh, you know, feeling very very positive about being able to try and get this issue to a place where everybody's comfortable with it and we're really at the top of our game in terms of when people do get hurt in terms of helping them get better. I agree. I agree. The, the team is unbelievable. And where can everyone find CLF? How can they donate? How can they share? So uh, on the U.S. side, concussionfoundation.org. On the Canadian side, concussionfoundation.ca. And then uh, select the brain donation tab. I mean, that's we're always we're always asking for that. Uh, the more and more that people pledge to donate their brains, the more that we're going to enable the research. Uh, we got a real push right now on the military side. Um, if somebody's current or former military, it's Project Enlist. Uh, so on the U.S. side, Project Enlist. On the website, on the Canadian side, ProjectEnlist.ca uh, to go and to donate your brains. Great. We'll put everything in the show notes. And Tim, thanks again, brother. Yeah, great to see you, Ben. Thanks again, friends, for listening to another episode of What's Good with Ben V. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends, share it on your social media. We look forward to you sitting back and enjoying future episodes where we look behind the curtain and learn a little something about an athlete or an entertainer that you didn't know.